it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Drifted in to shine in the spring of '92. He had quite a reputation, a name all the cowboys knew. He said he'd been a lawman in some New Mexico town, and he was there with Gatewood Miles when they rode old Geronimo down. One of my most treasured belongings is a cowboy print by Charles Russell, showing a Montana cowboy at work gathering some Mustangs. It's dated March 12, 1919, Great Falls, Montana. And under the artwork, it reads this way. Dear Mr. George Farr, I received your kind invitation to attend the stock growers meeting at Miles, and I'll be there with the rest of the reps. Cowpokes are scarce now, but I'm glad of a chance to meet the few that still live. Most of my old friends either rode for or owned irons, many of them across the big range, but they left tracks in history that the farmer can't plow under. Good or bad, they were regular men and America's last frontiersmen. With thanks and best wishes, Charles Russell. It was written 16 years after Tom Horn, a true cowboy and frontiersman who rode for the brand, was hung from a gallows in Cheyenne, Wyoming for the murder of a 14-year-old boy, a murder which he may not have committed. Horn was at that time a bounty hunter for the Cattlemen's Association, and in 1902, people were no longer in need of frontier justice, as they had been in recent years past. Horn was an anachronism. It was a new 20th century, and his kind was better left to history. Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This one from our Legends series is titled... Tom Horn, the last of the breed. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. The theme song we're using today is titled Tom Horn, and the Wyoming cowboy singer and writer is Mike Hurwitz, that's spelled H-U-R-W-I-T-Z, who has graciously granted us the okay to use it. I encourage you to check out his website at MikeHurwitz.com, spelled M-I-K-E-H-U-R-W-I-T-Z, The song Tom Horn, which is excellent, is on the Cowboy Fandango album, which he offers for sale at his online store. Tom Horn made tracks in history that few who know the West would ever forget, and he wrote his story the way it happened. Some of those who hadn't known him said he fictionalized it. Those who knew him, and there were many, said every word of it was true. He was a stagecoach guard, a cowboy, and rodeo winner. 
an Indian scout and interpreter that served under General George Crook and General Nelson Miles during the Apache campaigns, a Pinkerton detective, a miner and prospector, a deputy sheriff in Gila County, New Mexico, and a rancher. Horn was the man who captured the Apache chief Nana and later persuaded Geronimo to surrender. He was able to do this because as a 17-year-old rookie scout for the U.S. Cavalry, Horn was assigned the duty of living on an Apache reservation where he learned their language and their customs as well as earning their respect. As a scout, he also fought renegade Apaches, which earned him more respect. Horn was there when Ed Shefflin discovered a wealthy vein of silver ore and gave Tombstone, Arizona its name. He later became a rodeo champion, a legendary marksman, and in his last years, a range detective and bounty hunter for the Wyoming Cattlemen's Association. Killing for Hire seems a very unfitting choice for the story of a true Western legend. But legends aren't always heroes, and not every story has a tailor-made ending. Had he not been hung for the killing of a 14-year-old boy, a crime which he denied having committed, Horn's name would have been remembered in the same way we remember Wyatt Earp or Wild Bill Hickok. Tom Horn's name may be forgotten by many, but his story is the story of the American West. What Tom Horn gave us that most others didn't was his written story, which starts in Missouri. I was born near Memphis, Scotland County, Missouri, November 21st, 1860. A troublesome time, to be sure. And anyone born in Missouri then is bound to see trouble. Up to the time I left home, I suppose I had more trouble than any man or boy in Missouri. We had Sunday schools and church, and as my mother was a good old-fashioned Campbellite, I was supposed to go to church and Sunday school, as did most of the boys and girls in the neighborhood. I had three brothers and four sisters and there was not one of them but acted as though he really liked to go to those places. I had nothing particular against going if it had not been for the coon, turkey, quail, rabbits, prairie chickens, possums, skunks, and other game of that kind, with once in the season a fat corn-fed deer, and they were all neglected to such an extent by the rest of the family that it kept me busy most every Sunday, and many nights through the week, to do what I considered right in trying to keep on proper terms with the game. I would steal out the gun and take the dog and hunt all day Sunday and many a night through the week, knowing full well that whenever I did show up at home, I would get a whipping or scolding from my mother or regular thumping from my father. My mother was a tall, powerful woman, and she would whip me and cry and tell me how much good she was trying to do me by breaking me of my Indian ways, so she called them, though I'd never seen an Indian at that time and didn't know what their ways were. Then if a skunk or coon or fox came along and carried off one of her chickens during the night, at daylight she would wake me and give me the gun and tell me to take old Shedrick, our dog, and go and follow up the varmint and kill it. For a kid, I must have been a very successful hunter, for when our neighbors would complain of losing a chicken, and that was a serious loss to them, mother would tell them that whenever any varmint bothered her hen roosts, she just sent out Tom and Shed, and when they came back, they always brought the pelt of the varmint with them. To this day, I believe Mother thought the dog was of more importance against varmints than I was. But Shedrick and I both understood that I was the better, for I could climb any tree in Missouri and dig frozen ground with a pick and follow cold tracks in the mud or snow, and knew more than the dog in a good many ways. Still, I think even yet that there never was a better dog. I always thought Shed could whip any dog in Missouri, and at that time I did not know there was any other place than Missouri except, perhaps, Iowa. I knew of Iowa because one of our neighbors came from there. But I had many a hard fight myself to keep up the reputation of Old Shed. 
I recollect a family of boys named Griggs who had what they always claimed was the best coon dog and the best fighter in the world. And now I think he must have been a good dog and no mistake. But at that time, I did certainly hate him. Whenever the Griggs boys and I ran together, we had a dog fight, and the termination of the meeting was always a fight between Sam Griggs and myself. I also distinctly recollect that on nearly every occasion, Shed and I both went home pretty badly used up. The Griggs dog was named Sandy, because he was yellow, I suppose, and my argument always was that my dog Shed knew more than Sandy. To illustrate, once Sam Griggs was up in a tree to shake off a coon for Sandy to kill. A limb of the tree broke, down came Sam, and Sandy jumped on him and bit his ear and bit him in the arm and shoulder and used Sam up pretty badly before he could get Sandy to understand that he was not a coon or a wildcat. I always claimed that Shed would have had more sense than to jump on me if I'd been fool enough to fall out of a tree. I never could keep my mind on my books when I was at school, for it happened to commence to snow I could not help thinking about how fine it would be to trail coon on the morrow, and I would speculate a good deal more on the skins of the varmints I could catch, and could see far more advantage in having a good string of pelts than in learning to read, write, and cipher. Things were beginning to get rather binding on me about this time anyway, as a cousin named Ben Markley came to live with us. He was a son of my mother's sister, and I guess he was the best boy in the world. Oh, how many hundred times I was whipped or scolded and asked by father or mother or school teacher why I did not do as Benny did. Ben never forgot to wash or comb his hair. He never swore. He could walk to school and not get his boots muddy. One pair of boots would last him as long as four pairs would me. He never whispered in school, never used tobacco. He never went hunting nor fishing on Sunday, and never wanted to. He never had any fights, and he would talk in the evening about what the lesson would be in Sunday school next Sunday. Those were some of his good points, but not all, for he was held up as a model of perfection by everybody. Of course, my opinion of him was different. I knew he couldn't shoot. He couldn't climb a tree. He didn't know a coon track from a cow track. He was afraid of bees when a bee tree was to be robbed. He said coonskins were nasty, and skunks he could not go at all. He did not know how to bait a hook to fish. He couldn't swim, he was afraid of horses, and once he struck old Shedrick with a piece of hoop pole. I had known a long time before this that he was a failure, so far as I estimated boys, so when he struck the sharer of all my joys and sorrows, I jumped onto him. I was about 13 and he was about 17, but I had him whipped before my mother and the rest of the family could get me off him. Dad was there, but he didn't try to help the women pull me off, for I do think Ben was a little too good for him. Well, after that, Shed and I left him alone, and he put in a good deal of his spare time, leaving us alone. That row with Benny made me no favorite with the women folks, something that was of little importance to me then. The climax to my home life came the next spring. Some emigrants were going along the road, and behind the wagons were two boys on one horse, bareheaded, and one of them had an old single-barreled shotgun. They met Shed and me on the road and stopped to talk to us. I remarked that a man who shot game with a shotgun was no good. <laughs> the oldest one of the boys asked me if I called myself a man, and the answer that I made him caused them both to get off their old mare and tire to the fence. The younger and smaller of the two held the gun, and the big one and I started to scrap. Things were looking so unfavorable to the boy I was fighting that the smaller boy laid his gun down on the ground and was going to help his brother, 
He gave me a kick in the jaw as a preliminary, but he never smiled again. Old Shed sprang and caught him and threw him down and bit him in the arm and shoulder in doing it. That stopped the fight between the other boy and me, as I had to let the big one go to take care that Shed didn't hurt the small one too much. Well, I took the dog off and told them they had better get on their old mare and go and get the rest of the family if they wanted to win a fight. And then the big one picked up the gun and helped the small boy on the mare. And then he raised the gun and shot poor old Shed. Shed whined, and I could scarcely believe such a thing had been done. The big boy then got on the mare with the other one, and they went off at a gallop. I carried Shed home, which was about a quarter of a mile away, and he died that night. I believe that was the first and only real sorrow of my life. Dad got on his horse and went and overtook the emigrant train that night, and I guess there was something doing, for he came home that night and he was pretty badly done up himself. Dad was called the hardest man to whip in northwest Missouri, but when he came home that night, he looked to me like a man who had had at least what I would have called enough. I was about 14 years old by this time, and I wanted to go somewhere. I had heard of California and thought that would be a good place to go. Dad and I had a disagreement one day, and he had the trace of a single buggy harness in his hand, and he struck at me with it. I grabbed it, and then the fight was on. Well, I tried to do something, but the old man was too much for me. When I saw I was in for a daisy, I told him just to help himself, as it was his last time, for I was going to leave home. He helped himself, and when he got through, he said, Now, if you're going to leave home, go. And just remember that the last time the old man whipped you, he gave you a good one. This happened at the barn. I lay down on the hay and lay there all night. Next morning, Mother and the girls carried me to the house and put me in bed where I lay for a week. Dad had done his work pretty well. As soon as I could get around, I sold my rifle for $111, kissed my mother for the last time in my life, went out, took a look at old Shedrick's grave, got a lunch, and started west. I had, of course, heard of the west, California, Texas, and Kansas also, but from all the geography I picked up at school, I couldn't form any idea as to the location or character of these places. I had not the faintest idea, except that I supposed they were west. There was no railroad there, and as I had no horse nor team, I started on foot. I headed west and walked and walked day after day, stopping at farmhouses to get my grub, and many a good woman would give me a lunch to take with me. I never went hungry, and as it was in July and August, I could sleep anywhere. One woman named Mrs. Peters made me stay all day at her house and wear some of her son's clothes while she washed mine and started me out into the world again as clean as a new dollar. When I got to Kansas City, I spent the first cent since I left home. I stayed in Kansas City two days and then hired to an employment agency to go to Newton, Kansas to work on the Santa Fe Railroad. I worked on the railroad at Newton about 26 days and got $21 for it and then went with a man named Blades with his two teams on toward Santa Fe. Traveling in this way and with freighters, I finally reached Santa Fe in the latter part of 1874, just about Christmas time, in fact. By the time I got to Santa Fe, I was a different boy from what I was when I left home. I was getting wisdom and grayback. In January 1875, I hired out to Mr. Murray, superintendent of the Overland Mail Route that ran from Santa Fe to Prescott, Arizona. 
Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. I drove from Santa Fe to Los Pinos for a couple of months for $50 a month and was furnished a rifle to guard the mail and protect the passengers and keep up appearances, I guess. Then I was sent on to drive from Los Pinos to Bacon Springs or Crane's Ranch. I drove a couple of months there, and in May I was called into Santa Fe by Mr. Murray and sent with another man to the Beaverhead Station, close to the Verde River in Arizona, to take mules to replace some stolen by Indians. So within a year from the time I left home, I was on the Beaverhead Creek in the heart of the Indian country and could speak Mexican pretty fair. It was here that Horn was hired by the U.S. Cavalry as a civilian scout, packer, and interpreter under Al Sieber during the period of the Apache Wars. Sieber had set him up to live in a friendly Apache camp where he learned their language and their custom. He writes about that here. The cavalry horses for the Department of Arizona all came overland from California at that time, and they came in big bunches of about 400 each. So I hired out to the quartermaster to herd these horses till the different posts sent and got their allowance. Fort Whipple, right at Prescott, being the department headquarters. There was three of us to do the work, and as the other two were Mexicans and I was an American, although only 16 years old, I was made boss of the quartermaster's herd. When all the cavalry horses were issued to the different troops of the 5th Cavalry, I was out of a job, and Al Sieber, chief of scouts, came into Whipple from Tonto Basin and stayed a couple of weeks, and when he was getting ready to go back south, he asked me how I would like to go with him as Mexican interpreter at $75 a month. He told me I'd be with him all the time, and I was tickled to get a chance to go. So in July of 76, we sent out for San Carlos Agency, where we arrived in about 10 days. The San Carlos, or Apache Reservation, was 60 miles wide and 120 miles long, and Sieber and I, with a few Indian scouts and police, were on the go all the balance of the year round on the reservation. Sieber was keeping an eye on the peace and conduct of the Indians. Sieber spoke Apache and Mexican both, and as there was always Indians with us, I began to learn the language very rapidly. That was a glorious time for me, as I could hunt deer and turkey to my heart's content. And if I would leave camp and be gone all night to some Indian camp, Sieber never said a word against it. In fact, he encouraged it, as he saw I was getting into the Indians' ways and language very fast. Horn was to learn the Apache ways and earn their respect, as well as the armies, and soon he rose to the ranks. In one instance, as Sieber, Horn, and the army were crossing Sibiqiu Creek, they were ambushed by Apache warriors positioned on high ground. The officer in charge of their squad, Captain Edmund Hentig, was instantly killed and the men became pinned down under overwhelming fire. Desperate, Sieber ordered Horn and another civilian, Mickey Free, to break away and return fire from a hill. Together with the soldiers, the men managed to repel the attack. Tom Horn and Al Sieber also participated during the Battle of Big Dry Wash and gained recognition when he and Lieutenant George H. Morgan slipped through the banks opposite of the Apache line and provided covering fire for the cavalry as well as killing a number of Apache warriors. Tom Horn became a respected scout by then, 
known for going out alone on reconnaissance missions, as well as helping track down Geronimo's major stronghold. By November 1885, Horn earned a position as Chief of Scouts under Captain Emmett Crawford's command in Fort Bowie. During one operation, Horn's camp was mistakenly attacked by a Mexican militia, and he was wounded in the arm during the shootout, which led to the death of Crawford. Finally, on September 4, 1886, Horn was present at Geronimo's final surrender and acted as an interpreter under Charles Gatewood. After Geronimo's surrender, Sieber and his group of scouts were released from the Army's service, and Horn found himself staking a claim in silver-rich southern Arizona with the man most people claim is responsible for giving Tombstone its name, Ed Shefflin. We stayed there till the middle of May, and were then sent for to go to San Carlos, and there I was told by the quartermaster that there was no more money in the department to pay me, so I would have to be discharged until another appropriation was made. All the rest of the scouts and packers were in the same fix. We were consequently discharged, and Major Shaffey told us that he had understood there had been a good many irregularities around the agency, and that one of the strictest requirements of the Interior Department was that no white man not in the employ of the government would be allowed to live on the reservation, and we were given to understand that we must get up and get out. Well, the work was over for most of us, and we had to drift, and as Tucson was the mecca of every border man in that country, to Tucson we went. I had seven or eight good horses in a fine outfit, as did others of the scouts. Sieber was our leader, of course, and then there were Archie McIntosh, Sam Bowman, Frank Monick, Charlie Mitchell, Long Jim Cook, Frank Leslie, Frank Bennett, Marahilda Grijola, Jose Maria Yescus, and Big Ed Clark. All these were scouts or interpreters, and then there were a good many packers. I think there were 21 of us in the bunch. We stayed around Tucson for a while that summer till Ed Shefflin came in from California and was getting an outfit at Tucson to go to where he had found some rich mineral a few years before that time. Shefflin and Sieber were well acquainted, and they had a talk. So we all concluded we would go to this place as we had nothing else to do. Most all of the packers had gone to work skinning mules for some of the freighters so that when we finally did pull out with Shefflin, there were only about five or six of our original crowd. Shefflin described the country to Sieber, and Sieber told me it was the Cochise country, as Sieber and I called it, for Cochise, the Chiricahua chief of great fame, had been born there and two of his grandsons, Chihuahua and Natchez, still lived there a good deal of the time. Shefflin's party was all well-armed, but they were like a lot of pioneer miners. They seemed to care not in the least when Sieber told them, when we were ready to start, that we were going into the very heart of the country where the worst Indians in the world lived, that we would have to fight and fight hard if the Indians happened to be in there, and that there never was a time when there were not Indians there that we would not be there long till every hostile Indian in the South would know of it. Shefflin assures us that there's mineral there and lots of it, said one big prospector, and if there are any bad Indians there, they're going to have to look out for themselves. Sieber said, come on, boys, and we pulled out. There were about 60 men in the party, and as I was talking to Sieber that night at Pantano, he told me about those prospectors of whom I knew very little. Shefflin had found silver there and was run out by the Indians and one of his partners had been killed and he had gone to California and got these men and every one of them was a frontiersman, a miner, and a warrior. 
and no Indians could keep them out of that country now that they were sure there was mineral there, for nothing has ever yet stopped people of that kind. If they found the mineral there, as Shefflin assured them, it would be as that big fellow had said in Tucson, the Indians would have to look out for themselves. Six days after we left Tucson, we camped on the ground where Tombstone now stands, and after we made camp, Ed Shefflin says, Boys, we have arrived, for right here is where I was camped when Lennox was killed, and now come on, I will show you where I was digging. We all followed him up in the hills about a mile, and sure enough, there was a hole 23 feet deep, just as Shefflin had said there would be. The entire exposure was all ore and good ore at that, and those miners went as crazy as bats over it. Shefflin had this claim all staked out, and the men had made some kind of a contract with Shefflin before he brought them there. Shefflin told all of them to go back to the camp and that he would hold a council that night. That night, all these prospectors got together and Shefflin made them a talk and reminded them of some agreement entered into before they left California and Nevada, which, as I afterwards understood, was for Shefflin to get a quarter interest in all claims staked by the party. But Shefflin didn't say in this talk what their agreement was. He told them there were millions of dollars there to be had for the digging, and he made a motion to call the camp Tombstone, as the initial monument of his claim was right at the grave of Lennox, who had been killed by the Indians on the first trip to that country. Tombstone shall be the name of the new camp, said everyone, and the meeting broke up. Next morning, by daylight, every man was ready to go look for mines. Sieber and I went way up toward the divide and staked out a claim that day, and I will say here that though the claim was not worth a dollar, we sold out that fall for $2,800. Shefflin's claim that he had previously worked turned out to be a bonanza and was known as the Grand Central. Shefflin left the camp in three years, a very rich man. Many others of the party also made fortunes there as Tombstone turned out to be one of the big silver camps of the Southwest. I made plenty of money by hunting, as I could get two fifty apiece for deer, and I kept the camp pretty well supplied. The news went broadcast that a new mining camp was struck, and by October, there were 1,500 men there in plenty of stores and saloons. Such was the starting of Tombstone. In that one year, they had a population of 7,000 souls. After the Apache Wars, Horn used what he earned to build his own ranch, in his return to the Aravipa Canyon in Arizona. His ranch consisted of 100 cattle and 26 horses, and he also laid claim in the Deer Creek Mining District near the canyon. Unfortunately, it was short-lived, as cattle thieves stormed his ranch one night and stole all his stock, leaving a tremendous loss and bankruptcy for Horn. This incident would mark Horn's hatred and disdain for thieves, which would escalate in him taking the profession of range detective. Horn wandered and took jobs as a prospector, ranch hand, and rodeo contestant, but he's most infamous for being hired by numerous cattle companies as a working cowboy and a hired gun to watch over their cattle and kill any suspected criminals preying on them. In his line of work, Horn developed his own means to fight cattle rustling, which he described, I would simply take the calf and such things as that stopped the stealing. I had more faith in getting the calf than in courts. If he thought a man was guilty of stealing cattle and had been fairly warned, Horn said that he would shoot the thief and would not feel one shred of remorse. Horn would often give a warning first to those he suspected of rustling, 
and was said to have been a tremendous presence whenever he was in the vicinity. Fergie Mitchell, a rancher of the North Laramie River, described Horn's reputation. I saw him ride by. He didn't stop, but went straight on up the creek in plain sight of everyone. All he wanted was to be seen, as his reputation was so great that his presence in a community had the desired effect. Within a week, three settlers in the neighborhood sold their holdings and moved out. That was the end of cattle rustling on the North Laramie. Later, Horn took part in the Pleasant Valley War in Arizona between cattlemen and sheepmen. Historians have not established which side he worked for, and both sides suffered several killings for which no known suspects were ever identified. Horn worked on a ranch owned by Robert Bowen, where he became one of the prime suspects in the disappearance of Mart Blevins in 1887. Horn also participated with Glenn Reynolds in a lynching of three suspected rustlers in August of 1888. He claimed that throughout the war, he was the mediator of the conflict, serving as a deputy sheriff under three famous Arizona lawmen of the time, William Owen Bucky O'Neill, Commodore Perry Owens, and Glenn Reynolds. Horn worked in Arizona for a time as a deputy sheriff, where he drew the attention of the Pinkerton Detective Agency due to his tracking abilities. Hired by the agency circa late 1889 or early 1890, he handled investigations in Colorado and Wyoming, in other western states, and around the Rocky Mountain area, working out of the Denver office. He became known for his calm under pressure and his ability to track down anyone assigned to him. In one case, Horn and another agent, C.W. Shores, captured two men who had robbed the Denver and Rio Grande Western Railroad on August 31, 1890, between Cotopaxi and Texas Creek in Fremont County, Colorado. Horn and Shores tracked and arrested Thomas Eskridge, a.k.a. Pegleg Watson, and Bert Red Curtis without firing a shot. They tracked them all the way to the home of a man named Wolf, said to be in either Washita or Paul's Valley, Oklahoma, along the Washita River. In his report on that arrest, Horn stated in part, Watson was considered by everyone in Colorado as a very desperate character. I had no trouble with him. During the Johnson County War, he worked for the Wyoming Stock Growers Association, as well as being assigned by the Pinkerton to be in the county with the alias Tom Hale. He's alleged to have been involved in the killing of Nate Champion and Nick Ray on April 9, 1892, and was a prime suspect for the assassinations of ranchers John A. Tisdale and Orly Ranger Jones. The Pinkerton Agency forced Horn to resign in 1894. In his memoir, Two evil-isms, Pinkertonism and anarchism. Pinkerton detective Charlie Seringo wrote that William A. Pinkerton told me that Tom Horn was guilty of the crime, but that his people could not allow him to go to prison while in their employ. Seringo would later indicate that he respected Horn's abilities at tracking and that he was a very talented agent, but had a wicked element. In 1896, Horn offered his service in a letter to the Tucson Marshal in getting rid of William Christian's rustler gang. The next year, William Christian was killed by an unknown assailant, and his associate Robert Christian disappeared the same year. Although his official title was range detective, Horn essentially served as a killer for hire. By the mid-1890s, 
the cattle business in Wyoming and Colorado was changing due to the arrival of homesteaders and new ranchers. The homesteaders, nesters, or grangers, as they were referred to by the big operators, had moved into the territory in large numbers. By doing so, they decreased the availability of water for the herds of the larger cattle barons. Soon, efforts were made to get rid of these homesteaders, including the hiring of gunmen, such as Tom Horn. Violent gunfights, such as the bloody shootout that resulted in the death of nine trappers in Big Dry Creek, as well as the lynching and burning of homesteaders Luther M. Mitchell and Amy W. Ketchum, precipitated the war. In 1900, Horn had begun working for the Swan Land and Cattle Company in northwest Colorado. His first job was to investigate the Browns Park Cattle Association's leader and cowboy, Matt Rash, who was suspected of cattle rustling. Horn went undercover as Tom Hicks and worked for Rash as a ranch hand, while also collecting evidence of Rash branding cattle that did not belong to him. When Horn finally pieced together enough evidence to determine that Rash was indeed a rustler, he put a letter on Rash's door, threatening him to leave in 60 days. The cowboy, however, defiantly stayed and continued working on his ranch. As Rash continued to be uncooperative, Horn's employers were said to have given the assassin the go-ahead signal to kill Rash. On the day of the murder, an armed Horn arrived at Rash's cabin as the man had just finished eating before Horn shot him at point-blank range. The dying Rash unsuccessfully tried to write the name of his killer, but no trace was left of the murder. Only the accounts and rumors from various people point to Horn as the one responsible. Rash was supposed to be married to a nearby rancher, Ann Bassett, and the woman accused Hicks of being the murderer. At that time, Horn also suspected another cowboy named Isom Dart of rustling. Dart was one of Rash's fellow cowboys, but was believed to have been a rustler named Ned Huddleston, a former member of the late Tip Galt Gang. The gang, which had rustled cattle in the Saratoga area, was wiped out in a gun battle. Dart also had three indictments returned against him in Sweetwater County. When Dart was accused of murdering Rash, he took refuge inside his friend's cabin and waited for the rumors to cool down. Horn, however, managed to track down Dart to his cabin and saw him hiding together with two other armed associates. The assassin was said to have set up a sniping position under the cover of a pine tree overlooking the cabin from a hill. As Dart and his friends came out of the cabin, Horn shot him in the chest from a distance. Prior to the assassination, Horn instructed a rancher named Robert Hudler to ready a horse miles from the murder scene for his getaway. The next day, two 30-30 shells were found at the base of a tree, where it was believed that the murderer had laid in wait. Hicks was said to have been the only one in the area to use a 30-30. The news of Rash and Dart's death spread throughout the territory, and as such, the other rustlers scattered in fear. Horn tracked them all down and killed three other members of Rash's association. The story goes that he pinned one of the dead cowboy's ears at the homesteaders as a warning. During the Wilcox train robbery investigation, Horn obtained information from Bill Speck that revealed which of the robbers had killed Sheriff Hosiah Hazen, killed during pursuit of the robbers. Either George Curry or Kid Curry were said to have killed the sheriff. 
Both the outlaws were members of Butch Cassidy's Wild Bunch Gang, then known as the Hole in the Wall Gang, for their hideaway in the mountains. Horn passed this information on to Charlie Seringo, who was working the case for the Pinkertons. Horn briefly entered the United States Army at that point to serve during the Spanish-American War as a chief packer of the Fifth Corps. He left Tampa for Cuba, where he led some of the pack trains to the front. Horn personally witnessed the bravery of the famous Rough Riders and the Colored Regiment of the 9th and 10th Cavalry during their assault on San Juan Hill, as well as the humiliating rout of American soldiers under Brigadier General Hamilton Hawkins. Although the Packers were non-combatants, they were still prone to being attacked by Cuban rebels. Horn considered himself lucky to have lost no tracker during the war, although Horn recalled that he and his men were under constant fire as they delivered the rations and ammunition to the soldiers. Horn continued working as a packer during the war, even though he and many of his men contracted yellow fever. At one point he was bedridden and was deemed unfit for combat. After recovering, he returned to Wyoming. Shortly after his return, in 1901, Horn began working for the wealthy cattle baron John C. Coble, who belonged to the Wyoming Stockmen's Association. While working again near Iron Mountain, Wyoming, Horn visited the Jim and Dora Miller family on July 15, 1901. They were cattle ranchers. Jim Miller and his neighbor, Kells Nickel, had already had several disputes following Nichols' introduction of sheep into the Iron Mountain area. Miller frequently accused Nickel of letting his sheep graze on Miller land. At the Miller's, Horn met Gwendolyn M. Kimmel, the young teacher at the Iron Mountain School. Ms. Kimmel was supported by both the large Miller and Kells Nickel families, and she boarded with the Miller's. Horn entertained her with accounts of his adventures. That day, he and males of the Miller family went fishing. He and Victor Miller, a son about his age, also practiced shooting, both of them with 30-30s. Kimmel had been advised of the family's feud before she arrived and found that it was often played out by conflict among the children. A few days later, on July 18, 1901, Willie Nickel, the 14-year-old son of sheep ranchers Kells and Mary Nickel, was found murdered near the homestead gate. A coroner's inquest began to investigate the murder. More violent incidents occurred during the period of the coroner's inquest, which was expanded to investigate these incidents, and lasted from July through September 1901. On August 4, 1901, Kells Nickel was shot and wounded. Some 60 to 80 of his sheep were found shot or clubbed to death. Two of the younger Nickel children later reported seeing two men leaving on horses colored a bay and a gray, as were horses owned by Jim Miller. On August 6, 1901, Deputy Sheriff Peter Wallamont and Deputy U.S. Marshal Joe LaFors came to Iron Mountain and arrested Jim Miller and his sons Victor and Gus on suspicion of shooting Kells Nickel. They were jailed on August 7th and released the following day on bond. The investigation of the shooting of Kells Nickel was added to the investigation of Willie Nichols' murder in the coroner's inquest. Deputy Marshal Joe LaFors later questioned Horn in January 1902 about the murder, while supposedly talking to him about employment. Horn was still inebriated from the night before, 
but LaForce gained what he called a confession to the murder of Willie Nickel. Horn allegedly confessed to killing the young Willie with his rifle from 300 yards. Horn was arrested the next day by the county sheriff. Walter Stoll was the Laramie County prosecutor in the case. Judge Richard H. Scott, who presided over the case, was running for re-election. Horn was supported by his longtime friend and employer, cattle rancher John C. Coble. He gathered a team for the defense headed by Judge John W. Lacey and included attorneys T.F. Burke, Roderick N. Madsen, Edward T. Clark, and T. Blake Kennedy. Reportedly, Coble paid for most of the cost of this large team. According to Johann P. Baker, who wrote Tracking Tom Horn, the large cattle interest by this time found Horn expendable, and the case provided a way to silence him in regard to their activities. He wrote that 100 members of the Wyoming Stock Growers Association paid 1000 each toward the defense, but wanted a minimal effort. Horn's trial started October 10, 1902 in Cheyenne, which filled with crowds attracted by the notoriety of Horn. The Rocky Mountain News noted the carnival atmosphere and great interest from the public for a conviction. The prosecution introduced Horn's confession to LaFours. Only certain parts of Horn's statement were introduced, distorting his statement. The prosecution introduced testimony by at least two witnesses, including lawman LaFours, as well as circumstantial evidence. These elements only placed Horn in the general vicinity of the crime scene. During the trial, Victor Miller testified that he and Horn both had 30-30 guns and bought their ammunition at the same store. Another, Otto Plega, testified that Horn was 20 miles from the scene of the murder an hour after it was committed. Here was Tom Horn's last letter to his friend Coble, who had asked him to come clean with regard to what he knew. As you have just requested, I will tell all my knowledge of everything I know in regard to the killing of the nickel boy. The day I laid over at Miller's Ranch, he asked me to do so, so that I could meet Billy McDonald. Billy McDonald came up, and Miller and I met him up the creek, above Miller's house. Billy opened the conversation by saying that he and Miller were going to kill off the nickel outfit, and wanted me to go in on it. They said that Underwood and Jordan would pay me. Miller and McDonald said they would do the work. I refused to have anything to do with them, as I was not interested in any way. McDonald said that the sheep were then on Coble's land, and I got on my horse and went up to sea, and they were not on Coble's land. I promised to stay all night again at Miller's, as McDonald said he would come up again next morning. He came back next morning and asked me if I still felt the same as I did the day before, and I told him I did. Well, he said, we've made up our minds to wipe out the whole nickel outfit. I got on my horse and left and went on about my business. I went on as John Bray and Otto Plega said I did, and on to the ranch, where I got in on Saturday. I heard there of the boy being killed. I felt I was well out of the mix. I was over in that part of the country six weeks or two months later and saw both McDonald and Miller, and they were laughing and blowing to me about running and shooting the sheep of nickel. I told them I didn't want to hear of it all, for I could see that McDonald wanted to tell me the whole scheme. They both gave me the laugh and said I was suspicioned of the whole thing. I knew there was some suspicion against me, 
but didn't pay the attention to it that I should have. That's all there is to it, so far as I know. Irwin, who swore I came into Laramie on the run on that Thursday, just simply lied. All that supposed confession in the United States Marshal's office was prearranged, and everything that was sworn to by those fellows was a lie, made up before I came to Cheyenne. Of course, there was talk of the killing of the boy, but LaForce did all of the talk. I didn't even make an admission, but allowed LaForce to make some insinuations. Ownhaus, LaForce, and Snow, and also Irwin of Laramie, all swore to lies to fit the case. This is the truth, as I am going to die in ten minutes. Thank you for your kindness and continued goodness to me. I am sincerely yours, Tom Horn. Following eyewitness account of the hanging of Tom Horn was by John Charles Thompson, a reporter. His account was originally published in the Denver, Colorado Posse of Westerners. Horn was executed with a new and supposedly more humane method of hanging that relied on the emptying of a bucket of water to trigger the release of the trap door upon which the condemned man was standing. Quote, we newspapermen were crammed into a little space at the edge of the platform adjoining Horn's cell. The visiting sheriffs were marshaled at the first tier level below. The Irwin brothers, flanked by guards, stood beside them. The executioners and a venerable Episcopal clergyman, Dr. George C. Rafter, an acquaintance of Horn, were on the gangway at the opposite edge of the platform. Beside the Irwin stood two physicians, Dr. George P. Johnston and Dr. John H. Conway. They were gentlemen of the highest integrity whom nothing could have induced to contribute to a criminal conspiracy. Horn, his back against the cell grill, was half reclining on his narrow bed, puffing a cigar. He was perfectly composed. His soft shirt was unbuttoned at the collar, this exposing a scar of the wound he had suffered in a fight at Dixon. Ready, Tom, said Proctor. Horn arose, carefully placed his cigar on a cross-reinforcement of the grill, strode firmly the few steps required to take him to the side of the gallows platform. He nodded to the Irwins, sardonically scanned the peace officers below. Id, he commented to Smalley, that's the sickest-looking lot of damned sheriffs I've ever seen. Would you like us to sing, Tom? asked Charlie Irwin. Yeah, I'd like that, responded Horn. So while Proctor buckled straps that bound Horn's arms and legs, the Irwins each in a rich tenor, sang a rather lugubrious song popular on the range. Life is like a mountain railroad. The clergyman read his church's prayer for the dying horn, standing relaxed, listening without a tremor. Would you like to say anything? asked Smalley. No, replied Horn. Tom, spoke up Charlie Irwin. Would you confess to the preacher? No, was the reply. Proctor adjusted the noose formed with a conventional knot of 13 wraps to Horn's neck, drew a black hood over his head. Smalley on one side and a friend of Horn, T. Joe Cahill on the other, lifted the doomed man onto the trap. Instantly, the sibilant sound of running water permeated the breathless stillness. The instrument of death had begun to operate. To the straining ears of the listeners, that little sound had the magnitude of that of a rushing torrent. Smalley, his face buried in the crook of an arm, resting against the gallows tree, was trembling. "'What's the matter?' came in a calm tone through the black cap. "'Getting nervous? I might tip over?' 
seemingly interminable, the sound of escaping water ran on. Hey, Joe, said Horn, addressing Cahill. They tell me you're married now. I hope you're doing well. Treat her right. Indubitably, he was the best composed man in that chamber of death. Still the sinister sound of running water. Then, mercifully, the leaves of the trap parted with a crash, and Horn's body hung through the opening. Thirty-one seconds had elapsed since he had been lifted onto the trap. He fell only four and a half feet. His head and soldiers projected above the gallows floor. This drop was not sufficient. His neck was not broken. Proctor had feared to arrange a longer drop, apprehensive that stoppage of the fall of a body so heavy as horns might tear the head off. The slam of the massive hangman's knot against the side of Horn's skull knocked him into unconsciousness, and he did not suffer. For seventeen minutes, the physicians with fingers on his pulse felt impulses as a mighty heart labored on. Then the pulse ceased. Tom Horn was dead, unconfessed. So reads the article. When Tom Horn was hanged, he took a good part of the Old West with him. The Indians had seen their day. The horse was giving way to the newfangled automobile. The cattle drives were over. Wild towns were wild no longer, as a new kind of law and order prevailed. And the cowboy was already becoming a memory, leaving tracks in history, as Charlie Russell said, that the farmer can't plow under. The story of Tom Horn is a sad one, and makes a good case for why our system of justice, despite its many falls, doesn't allow for coerced confessions or entrapment. There were enough reasons in the testimony to cast a lot of doubt on Horn's involvement. The feud between the Miller and the Nichols families, the fact that Jimmy McDonald and the younger Miller knew enough about Horn to be able to set him up for the killing. The slaughter of Nichols' sheep with clubs, an act that doesn't fit with actions Horn would have taken. The shooting and wounding of Kells Nichols in the months after his son's killing, during which his sons witnessed two, not one, riders leaving the scene of the shooting and identified their horses and the fact that only circumstantial evidence and Sheriff LaFleur's testimony of a supposed confession was all it took to get a guilty verdict. My opinion? Horn's appointed attorneys, supplied by the Cattlemen's Association, purposely did a lousy job, the result being the silencing of Horn, who knew too much about who paid the money for hired killings and how the association operated. They likely paid LaFleur's to set up Horn for a confession, that LaFleur's no doubt put his own words to, making it appear that Horn was admitting his guilt, when in actuality, Horn didn't admit anything. If you get the opportunity, the movie Tom Horn is available on YouTube. It doesn't always follow the true course of events as explained here, but it is an accurate portrayal of the times, and McQueen does most of the action shots himself, which was his trademark as an actor. Like Tom Horn, McQueen died way before his time at age 50 of cardiac arrest brought on by mesothelioma and other contributing factors. McQueen's early life had mirrored that of Tom Horn. McQueen had been beaten regularly by his stepfather and at age 14 ran away from home to join the circus, later joining the Marine Corps. He became one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood by the mid-70s, starring in The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, The Thomas Crown Affair, Sand Pebbles, and many more films. Tom Horn was his next-to-last film. Today, he remains one of Hollywood's greatest legends. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. You can catch all our episodes at www.1001storiespodcast.com and comment on them at www.facebook.com slash 1001heroes, where our fans will often share our episodes and leave their comments. The theme song we're using today is titled Tom Horn, and the Wyoming Cowboy singer and writer is Mike Hurwitz. That's spelled H-U-R-W-I-T-Z, who has graciously granted us the okay to use it. I encourage you to check out his website at MikeHurwitz.com, spelled M-I-K-E-H-U-R-W-I-T-Z.com. The song Tom Horn, which is excellent, is on the Cowboy Fandango album, which he offers for sale at his online store. We appreciate your joining us, and we ask that you visit us regularly at iTunes and other podcast sites. 1001 Heroes is now enjoyed by tens of thousands of listeners in the U.S. and worldwide, and we thank each and every one of you. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. Drifted in to shine In the spring of 92 He had quite a reputation A name all the cowboys knew He said he'd been a lawman In some New Mexico town And he was there with Gatewood Miles When they rode old Geronimo down Finding work was easy He was a well-known hand Hired on at the two-bar For the Swan-Landed Cattle Brand Paid a zebron peeler He was a good one, that's for sure He spent his days just riding alone Penning notes on all the rustlers' doors on in, Tom. Let's have us around. All the boys throwing long ropes seem to be leaving town. But he looked up from his whiskey, said, This country is a changing, my friend. It ain't ever gonna be the way it was. The wild times won't come back again. Brandon came to an end Out on the Laramie Plains There was a war starting up in Cuba They called a southbound train It was down with the jungle fever But in Browns Park they're taking a stand The running irons were hot on the borderline Now there's two men dead in the sand Come on in, Tom Sit yourself down You're looking tired, old friend We ain't seen you around 
That Joel DeFoe's been sneaking about Trying to set you up on the slide The bosses are sweating Scared you might talk Tom, there's nothing money came by said he's guilty of a crime he never did laid down his share of hard men but he never dropped that kid when they hung him on a Friday beneath the gray Wyoming sky all the boys down at the Shine Club were smoking cigars and drinking rye on home, Tom Better call it a night All the lawyers are sleeping it off There's no one to fight well, He told me once I believe it's true This country is a-changing now, man It ain't ever gonna be The way it was Best get out where you still can Go on home, Tom 